Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, and we're talking with our guest today about the national debt ceiling and what it could mean for the country's financial and political futures. Democratic-led House of Representatives passed a bill last week to suspend the $28.4 trillion debt ceiling until the end of 2022, but Senate Republicans blocked that bill on Monday. We have had some action since then, President Biden signed a a bill that authorizes uh, keeping the government open at least until December 3rd. We have guests with us who are joining us today. Kyle Anderson is clinical assistant professor of business economics and the faculty chair of the evening MBA program at the IU Kelly School of Business. Marjorie Hershey is professor emeritus in the IU Bloomington Department of Political Science. And William Kindred Weinkoff is with us. He is associate professor in the IU Bloomington Department of Political Science and the director of graduate studies. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions for the show there. Well, uh, Kyle, it's good to have you back on the show, and I'm going to start with you today. I'm going to ask you, you know, you're, you're a Kelly School guy. You know all about these numbers. What's the debt ceiling, and why is it important? So the, the debt ceiling is a limit. It's a law passed by Congress limiting the amount of money that the U.S. government can borrow in, in aggregate, the amount of debt that they can take on to pay their obligations. So, and we are bumping up against that, um, that, that $28.4 trillion, as you said. And, and the, it, the administration, the, the executive branch has to pay its bills but also will will run up against that, cannot borrow beyond that without congressional authorization. Now, they can't, this money that they would would borrow to increase the debt limit can't, doesn't authorize any new spending commitments, correct? That is correct. So only, you know, the, the Congress passes all spending bills and, and all, all spending has to go through that. All tax changes have to go through Congress and, and be signed off by the president and become law. So this is not really a, a, a law that, that passes any spending, creates any spending, does anything with taxes. It's just about paying off the obligations that past laws have put into place, whether that's on the tax side or on the spending side. All right. That's uh, clinical assistant professor Kyle Anderson from the Kelly School of Business. And we're going to bring in two professors from the, the uh, Department of Political Science, Marjorie Hershey and William Weinkoff. Margie, I'm going to have you go first. So this has turned into, the debt ceiling has turned into quite the political sideshow, um, not just this year, but many years. Can you explain how it's become so political? Sure. Uh, it's become so political, like virtually everything else in the United States has become so political. And that is because the two parties have polarized uh, both in partisan terms and in ideological terms, one of them more than the other. I know that uh, our Republican friends probably would be startled at this, but you can show statistically that in Congress, the voting behavior of Republican members has moved to the right faster and to a greater extent 
than the voting behavior of Democratic members of Congress. And so that means since the two parties are pretty closely divided in terms of uh, their their standing numbers of representatives, numbers of senators, in fact, it wouldn't be possible to be more closely divided in the Senate, which is 50-50 between the Democrats and the Republicans. Any opportunity that, in particular in recent years, the Republicans have had to hold a necessary bill passage hostage in order to get other kinds of things done, they will do it. This has been a a massive game of chicken that uh, basically holds the United States' economic credit hostage um, primarily for partisan reasons. Um, You know, political scientists and other academics do our best to try to be as even-handed as we can. But it's very difficult to be even-handed about a situation that is not even-handed. And I'm afraid that's what we have here. When you talk about um, the fact that that it's not even-handed, I want to point out a couple of statistics, and and Professor Weinkoff can can respond to this too. But uh, Congress has acted 78 separate times to permanently raise or temporarily extend or revise the definition of the, the debt limit. 49 of those 78 times, it was under Republican presidents, and 29 times it's been under Democratic presidents. So it's almost counterintuitive to say that, you know, the Republicans should be standing in the way of doing this now, when 49 out of the 78 times it was under Republican presidents and it was done before. So what am I, what am I missing? Well, I'm not missing anything. It's just, it's a different world, right? Is that what, is that what we're facing? That's think, absolutely the case. Um, forgive me, Will. Um, I think what what's really important here is just to keep in mind that the debt ceiling is being used as a tool, as so many other things are being used in Congress currently as a tool, because the current standoff, the polarization that's occurred, promotes posturing, not policy making. It promotes taking action to whip up your base and try to make sure that they will come out to vote in the next election and give you more power. Um, it's as, as was said earlier, um, it's important to keep in mind that the debt ceiling has to be raised most recently because of the fact that the tax cuts under President Trump and Congress's action under President Trump have led to a very substantial increase in the deficit and the debt. Will? Yeah, I, 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 I think that's all correct. I, you know, the debt ceiling was first put into place in 1917, and it's been raised roughly every 15 months since. Um, the, the reason for it to be put in place originally was so that uh, when Congress authorized spending, uh, the Treasury Department wouldn't have to go to Congress to get permission to uh, borrow to to spend the money that Congress had had approved um, every single time they were going to write a check. So it was really created just for efficiency purposes, not so much political purposes, um, until quite recently. And I think, as as um, as uh, Professor Hershey um, mentioned, this has become more of a partisan tool and an asymmetric one. It's one that Republicans have used more often than Democrats to try to push for. Um, for for concessions, uh, particularly when they were in when they did not hold the presidency. Um, so there's an asymmetric form of politics here. And uh, three times during the Trump administration, the debt ceiling was raised with Democratic votes um, uh, as part of that process, um, including when when Speaker Pelosi was uh, was in charge of the House. So even when Democrats had the ability to um, to really force the issue. Uh, they did not do so, um, but Republicans did this under the uh, Obama presidency. They're doing it now with the Biden presidency. And this, in some ways, really started to become a major political issue during the Clinton presidency with when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House. So this has been a tool primarily used by Republicans in recent times. Um, and that, I think, reflects some of this uh, asymmetric um, polarization that Professor Hershey was talking about. Is there any political uh, process, technique, or strategy that would eliminate this tool and allow the debt ceiling to go up as needed without having a political fight every time? There are a few. Um, some are more creative than others. Um, the the 
um, I think the first thing to recognize is that there's um, there's sort of two purposes uh, legally that are working against each other. One is that Congress appropriates spending, and so that spending then becomes mandatory. Um, but if this debt ceiling uh, is not raised, then the government will not be a, will not have the ability to to actually spend what was uh, what was passed by Congress. And so we sort of have a question of which is more illegal uh, to break the debt ceiling or to not spend the money that Congress previously appropriated. And in this case, this is money that was appropriated when um, when uh, Mitch McConnell was the Senate Majority Leader. So this is the, the budget, in other words, from prior to the current Congress, which was controlled by Democrats. So um, Senator McConnell basically said that he and no Republicans would vote for this. This is a little bit like um, going out to dinner with your friends and ordering a big meal, and then after you've eaten and are satisfied, um, you know, refusing to chip in for for the bill. Um, but there are other remedies as well, and the Democrats could try to go through the budget reconciliation process with zero Republican votes. That's very complicated and time-consuming and could be blocked in committees by Republican members of those committees. Um, and the most intriguing option, which maybe we can talk a little bit about, is the option to print a new, uh, or mint, I should say, a new uh, platinum coin, which could be deposited by the Treasury into the Federal Reserve's account, which would give the government money uh, without actually broaching the debt ceiling. So this was something that was first sort of proposed during the Obama presidency, which uh, his administration um, refused to do this because they thought it was too wacky. But it is one legal option uh, to keep the government funded, even if the debt ceiling is not increased. Well, wacky doesn't seem as outrageous as it once did when we're talking about <laughs> what, what happens in Washington, D.C. But uh, Kyle Anderson, I, I wanted to, to ask about the impact of this. I mean, Janet Yellen has sent a letter to Congress and she came out and really talked about how devastating this would be. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, if the, if we were to not raise the debt ceiling at this point, what would the impact be on 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 the nation and on regular, you know, regular Hoosiers? Well, I mean, I think the, the bottom line is we don't really know. Um, as an economist, we've used the word unprecedented a lot over the last uh, 18 months or so, uh, and, and I'd like to retire that word. I, I'd like to have everything be precedented, but um, we, we really don't know exactly what the costs and the ramifications would be if the U.S. government uh, decided not to pay its debt, because the, the primary, the, the biggest impact would be in a lot of the financial markets. The U.S. government debt is viewed as the safest investment in the world right now. And there are huge benefits to us as citizens for having that. We, we you know, that there is a lot of debt. The, the U.S. government owned, owes a lot right now. The, the debt is quite large. What makes that manageable is that we pay a very low interest rate on that debt. So we, we can afford the debt levels that we have because we pay low interest rates. If our creditors decide that we're not reliable, that it's not certain that we're going to pay off our debts, those interest rates will go up and our debt situation will actually be significantly worse. So we're kind of in this, this ironic situation where uh, some folks are kind of trying to use us as a way to reduce our debt burden saying, hey, we need to get our, our fiscal house in order but the, the tactics that, that were going on here are, are much more likely to have a worse outcome where our debt situation becomes much worse because we're not making our payments. Does this tie to the uh, issue of government shutting down? I, you know, I, I think politically that they're, you know, I, I, I think that those who are kind of pursuing these goals are kind of have in their mind you know, government shutdown and, and this debt ceiling are are related in the fact that that there's some folks who think we ought to be doing less spending. Um, you know, it, it, it tends to be folks who are out of power who kind of say, oh, we should cut spending now while we're not in power. They, they don't seem to have the, the same motivations when they're in power. Um, so, I you know, I, I think these are, are, are two separate issues that the government shutdown or potential for a shutdown or, or budgets resolving to keep them going versus the, the debt limit one. 
in some ways, you know, we've had government shutdowns before, right? We, we, we've had them a, a number of times in the last 20 or 30 years, and they're not good, but they're not catastrophic either. Not, not raising the debt ceiling and not paying our debts has the potential to be catastrophic. And, and that's what we, again, we really don't know what exactly all of the ramifications would be if, if we truly even temporarily defaulted on some of our obligations. Uh, let me suggest here that um, these are all very good points, and I very much appreciate people raising them. Uh, as you said, wacky does not necessarily eliminate something from current politics. It seems to be part of standard procedure by now. But you asked what could be done about this. The challenge here is the same as with redistricting and many other uh, standard rules of procedure in politics that because of the fact that the people who need to change them are the people who benefit from them, um, it's kind of hard for us to expect a change to come from those people. The thing is, um, these people don't elect themselves. They're elected by people like us. Um, we're the folks who are putting these folks into power. And the way to change this is to put different folks into power. And the way to do that is to turn out to vote, get other people to turn out to vote, um, give to campaigns, um, do canvassing, become involved in all the standard methods of politics that lots of people wish somebody else were going to do. Al Anderson mentioned uh, the term unprecedented, and perhaps we could retire the word, but I think that 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 is really a word that, that you've used and Will's used, I'm sure, in political science and in politics for the last few years as well. I mean, we're, we're sort of in unprecedented times when it comes to these political um, battles, aren't we? Or have we gone through this before? Well, we have gone through it a little bit, but I, I do want to iterate, reiterate how, you know, I, I agree the word unprecedented has seemed to have lost a little bit of its oomph because it's there's so many things that have happened that were previously unprecedented recently. But this has never happened before, to my knowledge. So I researched the, the politics of financial crises globally, and I don't know of a single instance in which a country has voluntarily chosen just not to pay its debt when it could, and it didn't have any sort of economic reason not to do so. It just chose not to do so for purely domestic political reasons. Um, I mean, and I'm talking about every country in the world, not just the United States. So this is a this is a very strange political battle that most countries try to actively avoid if they can, because if this does go wrong, you know, that the worst worst case scenario is is the worst global financial crisis since the 1930s. Um, if this doesn't go wrong, in other words, the best possible outcome, it's still bad. It's not that bad, but it's still a bad outcome. So there's no good that can come from this in terms of the economics. Um, I think that the good that politicians hope, as Professor Hershey was suggesting, was that it will help them uh, become reelected. Um, but even there, I have some skepticism that this will that this will help too much. If you if you sink the economy and you 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 make it impossible for um, payments to Social Security and to Medicare and to unemployment insurance and to COVID vaccination programs and and other things like this, if that all shuts down, I'm not sure how that'll help um, reelect incumbents uh, in that in that particular scenario. That's okay. a very important point. Oh yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead, Margie. Sure. Let me just underline what Professor Weinkoff has just said in the sense that um, it's very tempting to normalize this. Uh, there are a lot of people who might say to themselves, oh, there's just politics again. You know, these people can't get along. Well, they can, and they have in the past. This is not normal. A lot of things that have happened in recent years have not been normal. It is not normal to uh, generate a coup against uh, the election of a president. It is not normal to voluntarily um, not pay your debts on the world stage and hamstring yourself. So I think it's important for us to realize that we are operating in a different stage now. This is a different set of rules than we have dealt with in the past, and they're very risky rules. 
want to give our contact information. If you have questions about the debt ceiling, the politics surrounding the debt ceiling, the the budgeting issues that are going on, what's happening in the, the economy, we, we got lots of broad topics we can talk about today. Um, you can contact us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send your questions there. Uh, Kyle Anderson, from the your perspective as an economist, um, I think one of you used the term that we're kind of playing chicken here. How bad could this be for the the world economy? You know, the stock market, which is not the economy, as we all know, but the stock market still continues to perk along. It's had a little bit of a hiccup here in the last couple of days. But, you know, what what could we see if if we continue to have this brinksmanship and we continue to not get these things done in a timely fashion? So I, it's a great question. And, and I think that that a few of the things that, that we can see, and obviously it would all depend upon kind of how it plays out. I think that, you know, Margie's point about it being a game of chicken is exactly right. Um, and, and I think that right now, most of the world views it that way and views that that somehow it's going to work out because in the past we've we've had this, um, you know, as, as Will said that, you know, for the last, this is not the first time we've gone through this and we've always managed to avert crisis, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we, we could never come to a bad outcome here. Um, I, a lot of things, I, I think, you know, stock markets, um, just financial markets in general would have some significant turmoil associated with the U.S., defaulting even on a on a short-term basis. So I, I think we would see, you know, stock prices fall, uh, the, the bond market crazy, people generally panicking a little bit. And we can all remember back to 2008 and 2009, these weird gyrations in the financial markets, right? That was the housing crisis that, that roiled banks. That bled over to a Main Street recession. That led to significant job losses. It, it took a little time, but these were real impacts. This isn't just paper money or, or kind of looking at the Yahoo Finance and saying, what's going on? It's weird. These things have real implications for the real economy, for, for folks in you know, central Southern Indiana who are gonna be dealing with the impacts if this all goes badly. Who do we owe most of this money to? To ourselves. To ourselves? Okay. Yes. But I would like to actually follow up on, on something that that, uh, that Professor Anderson just said. Um, and he mentioned this actually a little bit earlier, but to a large degree, the, the financial system is the foundation of the financial system is the belief that um, lending to the U.S. government is essentially risk-free. And all other interest rates in the economy are based on that premise. And so if that is called into question, we may very quickly start to see mortgage rates increase, uh, credit card interest rates increase, car loan uh, interest uh, rates increasing, um, perhaps, you know, within within a matter of days, if there was a, an, an actual default. And there was a report from Moody's, which is, uh, you know, typically a fairly pro-business group um, that said that a prolonged, they estimate that a prolonged stalemate uh, could cost 6 million jobs in the U.S., um, double the unemployment rate and erase about $15 trillion from Americans' household wealth. So this is, as, as Professor Anderson said, this is not just about, you know, the Wall Street banks uh, losing a little bit of their profits or something like this. This is something that would have a major impact on Main Street America, I think, fairly quickly if we go into a, an actual debt default. Yeah, I just want to re reiterate what you just said. I mean, you still use some very large numbers, but, you know, my household could lose... You know, I mean, I, I don't mean me personally, but an individual's household could lose thousands because of this. Maybe more. Maybe more. <laughs> right. Okay. Let me, well, let me elaborate just a little bit. Um, you had very sensibly asked, Bob, so who uh, do we owe this debt to? When I was in high school, when I imagine a lot of us um, learned this when we were in high school, somebody asked, so, you know, what is the national debt owed to? And the answer was, well, we owe it to ourselves. And 
I, like a high school kid, was thinking, well, duh, you know, if we owe it to ourselves, why don't we just say, well, okay, you know, uh, let's call it even, you know, um, we don't owe it anymore. But in fact, the, the more specific answer is that when the government needs more money and it doesn't get enough in taxes or in fees, it sells securities to whoever will buy them um, and pays interest on those securities so that people will want to buy them. That, you know, if they give the government $1,000, they'll get back 1000 plus interest in a certain period of time. A lot of these securities are held by other nations. Um, a lot of securities are held by people who have the kind of money that they can invest tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into government securities. So again, there is a real inequality built into this process in which when interest rates go up, the people who get the interest are uh, people who are not people like us in South Central Indiana. Marjorie, what is the political calculus on this? Because it seems to me, and I've read this and I think it's true, that the Democrats can, can pass this, they can extend the debt ceiling without Republican input. They just would like to have it. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And this is going to be a longer answer than you would probably hope for. But um, the Senate has the unusual rule of the filibuster that uh, any one person or group of senators can talk a bill to death as long as they object to its passage and sometimes are willing to just stand up there and talk long enough to keep anything else from getting done. There have been some exceptions to the filibuster that were passed over time. Um, the number of votes that you need to break a filibuster and end it has gone down so that it's now 60. Originally, there was no limit on um, the, the requirement of voting to, to um, break a filibuster, which meant that filibuster is absolutely ruled. But that still means that you need 60 votes to stop a filibuster. And with a Senate divided 50-50, you're not going to get them on a controversial measure. So another of the loopholes that was developed is called reconciliation. And it says that as long as the Senate parliamentarian, who is a, a big important figure right now, rules that a matter is pertinent to the federal budget and federal spending, then it can be passed by a simple majority which could consist of the 50 Democrats plus the Senate leader, who is the Democratic vice president. So reconciliation would essentially require that all 50 Democrats plus Vice President Harris agree to pass this bill, presuming that the Senate parliamentarian says that it is eligible for reconciliation. Now, that sounds simple enough, except for the fact that there are two Democratic senators who may or may not be holdouts with respect to the debt ceiling. We would hope that there would be enough sense to realize that um, voluntary self-damage doesn't make a lot of sense for either party. But uh, for two senators from West Virginia and Arizona, that bit of wisdom does not seem to have taken hold yet. So the Democrats can't be sure that they could pass this through reconciliation. And even if it could, it, as Professor Weinkopf said, is a lengthy process. And we're looking at a functional deadline of October 18th before this thing crashes down. From a political standpoint, I, I, I don't see how there's a gain in having this crash down on uh you know on the american people I, I don't see what a political party or a, a, a political uh, holdout on the other side of the aisle gains from having that happen i don't think that the republicans are hoping it will happen i think what they want to do is one of two things 
first forced the Democrats to be the one to vote to raise the debt ceiling, in which case they can say this isn't in fact an accurate statement, but that doesn't mean it can't be said politically that they're, uh, the Democrats are taxing and spending and they are raising the debt limit in order to be able to spend more in the future, which as we've mentioned is not correct. Uh, or if the worst happens, and we can keep our fingers crossed that that's not the case, then the Republicans have some polls. There's not a lot of polling here, but there's a little bit that says that if there is an economic catastrophe, that Democrats would be blamed more than Republicans. And we are now 13 months away from the 2022 congressional elections. So the Republicans are hoping that they would win either way that either the Democrats would get blamed for more spending or that the Democrats would get blamed for an economic recession and that Republicans would be elected to become the majority in the Senate and the House in 2022. And then they could, they would have the votes to raise the debt ceiling when it comes up again, right? <laughs> if, their, if their budget priorities were being met, yes, they would. Yes, yeah. okay, okay. Absolutely. We have, uh, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to sort this all out. We have three great experts on the program with us, helping us sort out this, this issue with the debt limit, the debt ceiling. Kyle Anderson, clinical assistant professor of business economics and faculty chair of the evening MBA program at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Marjorie Hershey, professor emeritus, IU Bloomington Department of Political Science, and William Kindred Weinkoff, Associate Professor, IU Bloomington Department of Political Science, and the Director of Graduate Studies. If you would like to ask us a question or send us a comment even, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also uh, find us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to switch gears just briefly. I know we've been having some, I think we're in a time of uh, a little more inflation and their inflation worries um, Professor Anderson, is this um, what's causing this, and is this a, an issue that we should be uh, particularly concerned about? I well, I think the what's causing it is a lot of supply chain disruptions, a lot of challenges that are coming out of the the COVID pandemic. So it is just more costly to produce goods and produce services right now than it was 18 months ago, two years ago. And it, a lot of this is just, we're in a very sophisticated global economy. Uh, a lot has to happen well. And there are a lot of disruptions, just transit costs, uh, fuel costs, labor right now. So it is something to keep an eye on. I, I'm sure a lot of people are concerned. They don't wanna see you know, prices going up right now. Having said that, I think there's just a lot of uh, support for the idea that this is relatively temporary. And that's what the Federal Reserve is doing right now. They're keeping an eye on it. They view a lot of these things as, as temporary price increases that will either stabilize or go back down over the next six to 12 months. And so that we shouldn't be too concerned about kind of going back to a, a 1970s situation. All right. Thank you. We have had a question come in, um, which says, how does Biden's infrastructure agenda factor into all this? How the Democrats not see this particular uh, issue coming? Well, I did. I do think they saw it coming because, as, as mentioned, several of us mentioned before, this has become a pattern uh, that Republicans have used when they have been in the minority um, is to use their minority filibustering power in the Senate to uh, to try to um, to block raising the, the debt ceiling. Um, so I, I'm not sure that Democrats didn't see it coming. In fact, I think, you know, they were talking about it even before the election last year took place, and then certainly in January when, when Biden was inaugurated. Um, so it's just the sort of thing that where these, ten, these, these situations tend to kind of go right up into the deadline, um, partially because that's what happens in a game of chicken, um, and partially because there are other priorities. But how it would impact the infrastructure uh, bill is that if the U.S. government is not allowed to borrow, uh, any more than it um, and defaults on its debt. In addition to all of the other chaos that that would generate, um, it would mean that the that the U.S. government would probably have to raise taxes in order to pay for that. 
um, and raise taxes not just on, on the wealthy, uh, but on a broader base of American citizens. Um, and that's going to be obviously politically difficult to do, but that would mean that there would be, you know, potentially no infrastructure spending um, if you can't borrow and you can't raise the taxes. From a political standpoint, um, for both you and, and for Professor Hershey, infrastructure has been one of those one of those things that has not been uh, as difficult to get spending um, approved for as a lot of other things. Because when you, I, I, I'm saying this as as if I know, but I'm asking for your your thoughts on it. I mean, it seems like uh, infrastructure projects put people to work, put. Um, put projects in place that uh, people generally want. Why is, why has it become, has, has it always been as, as controversial as it is now? Or again, is this just a, a product of our divided government? Margie? It's the latter. Um, yes, it's certainly the case that infrastructure projects have traditionally been privileged Congress wants to pass them because those are the projects that uh, generate public support. Um, people want to make sure their roads are paved. They want to make sure that bridges get fixed. And goodness knows, we certainly need an awful lot of that. It's just that the picture, I think, is so overwhelmingly dominated by partisan polarization that there is nothing that is not affected by it. And adding to that is the fact that under a Republican-dominated control of the House of Representatives in the late 1990s, under Newt Gingrich, um, various kinds of projects called earmarks, which means very specific projects in a particular area, funding I-69 in Indiana, for example, that used to be used as the sweetener in order to make deals of various kinds to come to agreement on needed legislation were no longer allowed on bills. Now, that doesn't mean they've totally vanished. That would be hard to imagine, but that uh, they are much more likely to be challenged now than they used to be. And so these sweeteners are no longer available, and that makes infrastructure projects just a little bit harder for people to um, be as enthusiastic about. We all want to make sure that uh, we get our highway here in Bloomington. We just don't want to pay for a highway in Wyoming. But um, when you don't have earmarks, then you're stuck with a bill that's going to pay for both of them. And sometimes people don't get quite as enthused about that. That seems like a, a classic unintended consequence where the, uh, the Congress may have been saying, you know what, these earmarks are going too much to Senator Byrd in West Virginia, for example, or some of the, the some of the very strong senators. And so, boy, it would be more fair to do away with these earmarks. And it sounds like you're saying now that's making infrastructure projects or infrastructure bills becoming harder to pass because nobody has it. There's no way to sweeten the pot. No, it's um, characteristic of the history of reform in American politics, and I'm sure in politics elsewhere as well, that reforms almost always have unintended consequences, and sometimes those unintended consequences overshadow the intended ones. In other words, sometimes um, you hope that you don't get what you pray for. Exactly. Yeah, I think we've had that in, in a lot of cases, maybe even in, you know, breaking up the big uh, telecom companies in some ways, <laughs> you know. Um, so, our, again, our numbers, if you have a question or a comment, news at indianapublicmedia.org. It's not a number. It's a web address. Or you can send us questions uh, at Noon Edition on Twitter. Uh, Professor Anderson, again, the, the debt ceiling comes up every 15 months, I think, um, we said that before. I think that's that's been um, sort of a standard operating procedure. From a, a, an economic standpoint, you know, again, is there a, um, you know, if if you could do away with these discussions, you know, do you think that they are a um, sort of a a drag on the economy when they come up, or or have have, have the markets become sophisticated enough that they they know that something's going to get done, so they don't particularly freak out. Yeah, I mean, there's two questions there. One, you know, if we could do away with it, 
I think we should absolutely should. Uh, again, I, uh, other countries don't have these debt limits. They don't, it, it doesn't really serve a purpose because going back to this, fundamentally, the, the, the debt and the deficit are determined by congressional spending. So we're just paying our obligations and, and that should just be unquestioned. Um, and so it doesn't serve any role other than to create uncertainty. Yes, I think the markets have largely ignored this in the past because somebody swerves in this game of chicken. But, you know, just because it's 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 never blown up on us before doesn't mean that that we ought to be taking that chance every 18 months. I, I, I think that there is a scenario in which it doesn't go the way that, that we think it should. It doesn't have this last minute you know, resolution. I I will breathe a big sigh of relief if in the next, you know, what will most likely happen is something, it, it will get resolved in the next two weeks, but there's a small chance that it won't and we'll face serious economic consequences because of it. You know, I'm, yeah. surprised, I'm surprised at the idea that um, that no other nations have this as an issue. What What do they do? They just pay their debts? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> For debts, they pay it off. Right. And, as, and that's what that's what we ought to be doing. That's what everyone ought to be doing. And the discussion we ought to be having, the political discussion is around these spending bills and tax cuts. And how do we bring our our, you know, our deficits in line with what they should be? And that that's that's a political process. And the two parties have different priorities about you know tax cuts versus spending increases and and you know infrastructure these are all part of the normal political process this debt ceiling thing is, is something else altogether that really just doesn't make any sense I want to ask our political science professors about the the issues of the the deficit versus the issue of the debt. Um, there are some that would say we have we need to have a balanced budget, and there are others that say not necessarily. Although I I, I would have to point out that we seems like we rarely do. I think maybe under President Clinton we were able to have a balanced budget for a couple of years. Am I right about that, Margie? Uh, yeah, depends on what you want to count <laughs> with, right. with respect yeah. to a particular year as opposed to the future. Will, why don't you go ahead and explain the deficit and the debt? Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, I think um, the, the first thing I'd like to do is reiterate something that, that Professor Anderson just said. You know, if you play the game of chicken enough times, eventually you're going to crash, right? It may not happen the first time or the second or third or fifth time, but if you keep doing it, the chances of something bad happening eventually go up significantly. Um, and in this particular situation, this is a totally unforced situation. Markets are not telling the United States government that they're borrowing too much. Um, in fact, markets um, are willing to lend to the government at very, very low interest rates. And if you look at the inflation-protected uh, Treasury security bills, um, the government uh, can actually borrow at negative real interest rates for 40 to 50 years right now. So markets will literally pay U.S. taxpayers uh, for us to take their money, which is a, a very rare circumstance. But if there was ever a time to not worry so much about the deficit and the debt, it's actually literally right now. This is this is the strangest period to be having this this uh, this controversy. Um, the difference between the debt and the deficit is that the the deficit is a yearly um, deficit. So how much uh, more the government is spending than taking in on a year to year basis, whereas the debt is the accumulation of all of those. Uh, decisions over time. But really, it's not concerning unless markets start to pressure uh, the government by, by increasing the amount that they charge to lend. Um, and they're not doing that. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, the government has almost never had the ability to borrow more cheaply right now. Uh, I'm sorry, than it does right now. You know, I think that the difficulty we often face here is that most of us don't spend very much time looking at the duller parts of uh, American politics, of which, forgive me, the American economy is right up there at the top. And when that happens, it's very easy for one or another political figure to use a particular metaphor, a particular way to look at an, an issue 
and convince people that that's the right way to do it. In fact, that's really what politics is, is getting your definition of an issue accepted by people. The balanced budget folks have very often given people the sense that the federal budget is kind of like your checkbook or your bank balance, that you can't float a deficit and so the federal government can't either. It's a really inappropriate kind of analogy because of the fact that, you know, we as an individual household don't fund the Defense Department. You know, we don't uh, have to pay the Army. Um, we don't have to pay Social Security and various other things, each of which of us gets much more back from it than we ever put in. But these very simple images have been used over time that really have been misleading in terms of people's understanding of what's going on in politics. I'd urge people listening, don't feel that this is way beyond your understanding, that this is complicated. If we can understand it, you can understand it. And it basically boils down to the fact that when you have two parties who are at least one of which willing to cut the United States adrift in terms of its economic roots rather than give way and possibly lose an election, then we, the people who are actually putting these folks in office, have to start becoming more active. We have to do something about it. We have to change not just the opinions, but the faces of the people in the House and the Senate. And I think also to, to build on that, you know, part of the motivation here um, is, is to change the mentality of how we think about the budget. And as Professor Hershey just said, the government is not a household. The government can actually create its own money and households cannot. And that gives the government a different type of privilege um, that normal households do not have. Moreover, households borrow for important purposes all the time. I have a mortgage um, that I'm going to pay off over a very long period of time. And so it's normal even for households to not balance the budget literally every single month with zero debt involved. Um, but, but the government doesn't even have the normal constraints of a household or a normal business because it has the ability to create its own money. And that's a different, um, different form of, of power. Really glad you made that point about uh, individual households. I, I've, um, you know, I like I. I think I heard it on this show once, and it, and it's always stuck with me that that uh, yes, my balance, my budget may be balanced for the year, but in fact, I have that mortgage, so I still owe somebody a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I may have a car debt, and I so I still owe money on that. And so the the fact that we have a national debt is not a bad thing. And even the fact that we have a deficit, that we are, we may have borrowed money and we're paying interest rates on that money is not necessarily a bad thing. But how much is too much? And I guess I would turn to the economist on that one. How much is too much? Has our national debt gotten way too high? How much deficit spending is too much? I, I You know, there, there's no one answer to that, but I, I think that... Um, you know, we're, we're not there yet. There, there will be signs when, when we've gone too far. So I, I do think that the fact that we're able to make the, the interest payments on our debt and, and, and the, the point earlier that, that we're borrowing at negative real interest rates, people are willing to lend us money. And if we can invest that money, right? And that's part of the idea of infrastructure. Infrastructure spending is popular in part because it's good economically. It helps the economy grow in the future, and therefore it makes the those returns positive. So yes, we're spending a little more now, but the the economic benefits of that in the future will far outweigh the costs of that spending. So we we want to keep track of it. Ideally, what you would like is your deficit, your annual deficit, to be lower than the rate of growth of the economy. So if we have a strong growing economy, and yeah, maybe we're, we're, we're spending a little more than we make each year, but what really matters is the relative size of the debt relative to the overall economy. So you're trying to, trying to factor those two things in there with, okay, yes, we've got this large number of debt, uh, this large amount of debt, but we can always pay it off as our economy grows you know, within some constraints. That, that doesn't mean I believe in, you know, carte blanche, just go out and spend whatever you want. 
you just would be want to be making good investments in the economy. Um, Kyle Anderson or Professor Wein Weinkoff, can one of you explain to, to me, because I'm not uh, as knowledgeable about these issues, why would somebody loan money to the U.S. at a negative interest rate? What's in it for them? So it's, it's not that the, the interest rate itself is negative. It's just the interest rate is lower than the rate of inflation. Okay. And so the, the I guess the short answer to your question is, is because it's the safest alternative out there. So I will take an extremely low uh, interest rate. I'm, you know, some folks are willing to loan the U.S. government money and maybe they get that, you know, literally quarter of an interest, you know, a quarter of a point of interest just for that security. And, and even though it might be worth less in the future, it, it's it's all about security and stability. And again, that's one of the things that we risk giving up if we don't pay our debts and, and we have the, these debt ceiling crises. Thank you. Yeah, that's one, that's yeah, one thing we can learn from Broadway musicals here. Um, Alexander Hamilton wanted to have a national debt, even if we didn't need the funding because it was a signal to the world that the United States could be trusted fiscally and uh, in terms of its, of its finances more generally. And that remains true. Uh, being able to pay our national debt is one of those things that maintains our secure, or at least it used to be secure, place in the world order. It is also a constitutional requirement under the 14th Amendment to pay our debt. Okay, we're we are really out of time, and I, I want to thank all three of you. It's been a great discussion today. This is a complicated issue, and and all three of you have done a great job in bringing it down to uh, to my level. <laughs> I appreciate that very <laughs> very much. Uh, I want to thank Kyle Anderson from the Kelly School of Business and Marjorie Hershey and William Kindred Weinkoff from the India uh, the IU Bloomington Department of political science. For our producers, Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire. For engineer, John Bailey. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks a lot for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Support comes from WFIU listeners like you and from Brown County Music Center, presenting the founding member of Punch Brothers and Nickel Creek, Chris Thiele, live in concert in Nashville, Indiana, Sunday, October 3rd. Tickets and details at browncountymusiccenter.com. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington. With translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington, W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus, W269BU at 1017 in French Lick, West Baden, W255BG at 98.9 in Greensburg, W291AM at 1061 in Kokomo, W261CM at 100.1 in Seymour, and W236AE at 951 in Terre Haute.